Hello, I'm Mark. And I'm Catch. And we are doing the podcast, How Tall Is This Dragon? This dragon specifically. Not just any old dragon. But because, this particular dragon. Because what this podcast is about is how we take all our various information and knowledge we have about swords, horses, history, philosophy, fantasy, and bring it all in to the realm of the imagination. So this is our nerdy podcast, which can cover fantasy and role-playing and swords and historical fencing and horses and all of those cool things. And today we're going to talk about swords. We're going to specifically talk about the things that we really, really want you to get right about swords. So yeah, these are the things that are going to cause me in particular, though it catches you the same, I, I imagine, physical pain. When we encounter them, okay? Those things that are just the big bugbears that people get wrong about swords. All the time. And the first one is that a sword is not a lightsaber. You can touch it with your hand. You can, in fact, grip it quite hard with your hand and your hand will not fall off. Absolutely. Look, my, this is my day job, which I'm really, really blessed to be able to do. I'm one of two professional historical fencing instructors um, in Australia. So I teach all of the medieval and renaissance arm, armaments, pole weapons, daggers, swords of all sorts and whatnot. Um, yeah, so this is literally my profession. And there's also a lot of like research and whatnot, uh, inter-period sources that goes in, into that. And all of those period sources show people gripping the damn blades. Whether they're grabbing a blade, um, like that's been stopped by a parry, or whether they're actually putting their, their offhand further down the blade to turn it into sort of a shortened spear, something we call half-sorting, okay? Or even the Donnerschlag, like the, the Thunderstroke, which is where you grab your sword, normally a long sword, like, and this is often an unarmoured and armoured fencing technique, by the blade, and you smack them in the face with the pommel or the, the crossguard, okay? Um, and these are legit techniques, and they, these work without hurting your hands at all. So, if you can actually grab both hands on the sword and hit someone with the non-pointy end, were they right? Does the pointy end go in the other man? Well, yeah, well, it helps put the pointy end in the other man, okay? Because you're getting close. You can actually sort of hold them out with the middle of that sort of blade while you're stabbing them with the shortened, shortened end. And you've got a lot more. Yeah, it really does help to put the pointy end in the other man um, because it, it's a technique used often to punch through the armoured um, joints like that would have no sort of mail over them, so the elbows or the armpits or the neck or something like that. Anywhere you could find a hole to, to shove through, okay? Normally those bits were had additional armour on them, and you're going to punch through it with that. Which leads us to a point quite directly related to the point about sharpness, which is that armour actually works. I know you've seen in Hollywood where they just cleave through the armour. That's not how it works. Oh, look, you in could any hit with a sword on someone's helmet or breastplate all day and you would damage the sword, now, not the armour. To be fair, there's a little bit of nuance in this, okay? So, like, some historical helmets, they're not necessarily massively heavy, so, like, smacking people in the head will eventually do them blunt force trauma with it, particularly if you're using the bits, like the pommel, <laughs> that are meant <laughs> to inflict blunt force trauma on the person. Rattle that head cage around a bit more. Um, but, look, the idea that weapons can go through armour without the intervention of really powerful magic is kind of ridiculous. 
we have a really good example of how this plays out in some sort of early med- sort of mid-medieval techniques or accounts of this, where um, we hear accounts of knights coming back from battle um, with their armor like torn or rent. Okay, They're, this is the point they were using male armor, which is normally known to noobs as chainmail. Okay, it's just male. Okay, and that's all I'm going to say on it today. Now, this was sort of a once-off type thing, and only occurs in a very small window where the swords are made of, like, high-quality steel, and the armour is made of iron, okay? So in that case, it's exactly like the Iron Age, Bronze Age stuff, and you can expect, sort of like, it like the superior weapon to be able to go through it. Short newsflash... Katanas are not a superior steel that can go through the, they can cut through steel bars. Okay. Um, funnily enough, the um, the whole myth of cutting through iron bars probably relates back to like sort of a nineteenth century prize fighting type thing. Okay, where they had up until like the First World War, there were heaps of these prize fights and things that happened with swords. It happened everywhere. They happened on horseback. Um, between military type people or whatever, um, and one of the feats that people would show was cutting through lead bars with a sword. Now, and that was supposed to be sort of one of your feats of swordsmanship was being able to do this, and it impressed like people massively. So it's probably where the iron bar thing comes from. But as Mark said, it's a matter of cutting through an inferior metal. Okay, and look, in the sense of the sort of 12th, 13th century example, it's just creating tears or rips in the armour, okay? In these recordings, the people still came back. You had to not only create a tear in that armour, which you could only do in about a 50-year period, but then you had to get the next blow through in the same place. Yeah, so look, honestly, it circles back to your original point catch. Armour works, okay? Um, The sword is not a lightsaber. It does not magically shear through things, okay? And it's not a crowbar either. I mean, like... I'll tell a little bit of a lie. Some like armoured fighting swords were essentially sharpened crowbars, but they're very specialised weapons. But you cannot just even them, you can't just smack them against steel weapons and expect to do anything useful. A steel armour, that is. Uh, the only exception to this armour working is, again, in Hollywood, where you see people with huge gaping gaps in it. Now, I'm not even talking about those appalling D&D pictures where girls go out there in their chainmail bikinis, which, by the way, do not do. No, please don't Male please. is excellent, but you need protection between it and your skin. Oh, I think I'd look excellent in one, you know? like You might look excellent <laughs> in one. You wouldn't look excellent in one once it had been driven into your flesh. No, indeed. But um, the... Male without padding. It's brilliant. I love it. <laughs> Ooh, that's cheeky. (laughs) That's painful. (laughs) However, you've also got examples like the Game of Thrones one you were talking about. Absolutely, the Game of Thrones one. Certainly the thing that finally turned me off. Tried to watch the series. Looked looked really, really fun. Couldn't cope with with the rape porn. Okay, right, that was one thing. Can't watch, can't watch. And then finally it comes around to, of course, a fight with a knight that was in full armour and his neck was just completely bare. Full armour, just this great gaping hole in the neck. No, it just did it for me. In fact, um, armour, you usually have not just one layer over your neck, 
but often two and even up to three. This was a vul- vulnerable point. You protected it as well as you could. Absolutely. The armour is generally helmet to the head, body, neck, you know, in that sort of order in terms of armour. But now one of the things we haven't captured yet really about sharpness is, and this is really interesting, sharpness is one of the key characteristics of, of a sword that people respond to. There's a really powerful psychological effect of facing any sort of weapon that is sharp. We see this today with knives, you know, where soldiers and police officers and everything's like, I'd prefer to deal with guns before dealing with knives, you know. Um, And it is really interesting because in the historical sources, the main virtue that keeps on being talked about is courage exactly because of this psychological impact of having to deal with naked steel type thing. Uh, Paulus Cal, um, in his crazy picture of what a medieval fighter looks like, the key virtue is courage, so that you press forward and don't run away. Um, Fury um, talks about courage is absolutely vital, and boldness, being ready to take advantage of the situation. Lichtenauer himself, like so these are all sort of um, late medieval fencing masters, says that, look, if you're fearful, don't even bother learning to fence. It's that important. And it's, you know, this sense of psychological threat on you with a bladed weapon. Um, And it's interesting that this actually has some sort of physiological basis as well. Um, There's been a lot of studies shown that the first time someone gets cut badly with a knife, with a sword, whatever bladed weapon, they almost always go into shock. Yeah, I certainly Far, did that. far more often will they go into shock from a cut than people will from, in fact, a gunshot wound. Yeah, okay. So it certainly a circ- seemed to be a physiological thing, like responding to cuts. There's a particular pain of, of being cut that's likely to cause shock. Okay. So that plays into that sense of psychological threat. Um, interestingly, um, the second time you get cut badly you often don't go into shock. It seems to be something that your body will adapt to. And, of course, there's something a lot of medieval people needed to adapt to. But it still creates that absolute need for courage when you face a blade. Absolutely. And look, can't be underestimated, like, the difference between facing something that is blunt, you know, and something that is really, really sharp. Okay, so I think in sort of role-playing and narrative situations type thing. This is a really potent thing that we need to do. And it's, you know, we see in all sorts of storytelling, uh, a sword fight's always this brilliant place to bring both internal and external um, factors or conflicts right to, like, literally a razor's edge type thing, um, if you excuse the pun. Um and that's really, really exciting. We really respond to, respond to that. Um, and when people don't understand the sharpness of things, it just completely ruins it. Because when you're facing a sword, and, I mean, it's a really worthwhile experience if you have someone who has a sword on their wall that happens to be sharp, get them to take it off and point it at you. Look down that end of the blade. You're not just facing death. You're facing the possibility of being maimed, of being cut to pieces, of pain and suffering, not just death. And I think that's what makes, and this again has been attested by people who've been in these situations, swords and knives even more frightening to face than guns. This brings me to point number two, which is my personal bugbear, and that's power. 
I've read, I've read it done well, I've read it done badly, but almost every sword fight I have read in a novel talks about the power of the opponent, them raining down these hard blows that the poor hero or heroine is desperately trying to hold off them. That is not how a sword fight works. Well, okay, now... I can disagree with you just a little bit here, but it's going to make your point for you, <laughs> okay? <laughs> that is exactly how I see my kids fighting. Like, this is my kids sort of eight to, like, um, 14 type things. Um, before they know any better, okay? They'll just have at them and smack them and smack them. And, like, and because they're not very good, they can't hit them. And they go, oh, I'm just going to do it harder, <laughs> okay? This, this is... Fight, this is sword fighting like fist fighting, and, you know, it's really not very effective. Because, and I'm not a boxer, and boxers may disagree with me, but fist fights, it really does look as if strength and power and how big your biceps are make a difference. It's not what makes a difference with sword fighting. With sword fighting, it's about speed, it's about skill, and we'll go into more detail about that in a minute. It's about dexterity and it's about initiative. Absolutely. Then um, there, are, you want to understand that like there are two types of strength that are actually practically useful when you're using a, a weapon type thing. Uh, we'll talk about them as sort of like as passive and sort of active types of strength. Um, and I've got two students that are exceptionally good examples of both of those. Now they're about the same height. They're big boys, they're about six one, which are 185 centimeters or a bit above that for you people who are cultured. Um, and um, now Ben is, is he's tall and he's skinny and he's a weed, okay? And Christoph, okay, is is a big, big boy, okay? He'd be well over 100, 100 kilograms um, and he's so, solid, okay? Now, and he's strong. Absolutely. I know when you're he wrestling, is like strong. Okay. Christoph is not the person you want to wrestle. Okay, now Ben is the one who hits harder by a long shot. Okay, and that is mechanics, um, and that is effort. <laughs> it's possibly a bit of intensity and hatred. I don't know, <laughs> like because Ben's very intense, so he's really go- goes for it. Okay, but you know, um, that sort of active strength is literally about creating the power and, and creating the speed of the sword, okay? And, and it's, it's useful because, like, it, it's difficult to deal with, okay? Um, it and does it's mean about the mechanics. It's about that skill and fluidity of how those blows come across. I've noticed every time one of Mark's students improves their mechanics, goes up a level in their skills, they have to recalibrate how they hit Absolutely. because they're suddenly hitting two, three times harder than they were it doesn't feel like it to them. They're, they're moving effortlessly. It feels like a light blow. And the other person's doubled over saying, whoa, man, too hard. Absolutely. And they have to pull back. Yeah, absolutely. So the sense of power um, is very separate to strength. So this active power is very separate to strength. Um, it's not about like any sort of passive holding out, which is sort of the second point I'd like to make here about using weapons. There is a passive strength that is useful. Now, go back to our two boys again, okay? Now, Christoph, lots of pe- people find Christoph really difficult to fight, and he is big and strong, okay? But it's nothing like the experience that you see in the books at all. It's like hitting a brick wall and knowing 
that you're going to have to yield away from that brick wall. You're not going to be able to push your blows through or around that because his structure is good too. So there's a skill in being able to use that. Like, so you are going to hit a brick wall and you're not going to be able to get through that. And that's what it feels like against sort of a skilled fencer who's sort of big and strong, not like raining blows down upon you. It feels like there's an unstoppable like force coming at you and there's nothing you can do with it. Now that's terrifying, but it's not blows being rained down on you. So please, I would really stress this to all writers, all role players, anybody even thinking about swords out there. When you're imagining that fight, it is not someone striking down this hard blow and the other person valiantly attempting and frequently failing to hold them off. It's about the person who is hitting. That's about their mechanics. That's about their initiative. And that's about their skill. Absolutely. Which is really the third point. You know, like power and strength is, is, is important parts of a fight. Massively exaggerated. Um, skill is ultimately... Um, your final quality that is important. And we'd see this from one of the quotes of one of the historical masters, um, Hans Dobringer. He says that if it were not an art, a fencing itself, then the strong would always win. So that's exactly what it's saying. It's saying like, no, this is an art. This is not like fist fighting or wrestling where there is a lot of skill to the, these things, but the strong will generally win, you know. Um, an advantage in strength or, in fact, youth, for example, often in sort of um, wrestling circles, is thought equivalent to like a belt. Like a belt that's one rank lower than another belt in terms of experience and practical ability um, can match someone one rank higher with a lot more skill simply because of pure strength. Now, that doesn't happen in fencing. It doesn't happen at all. In fencing, the skilled will always win. Okay, so moving on to point three, okay... This point three is about skill. And the first thing we're talking about here is the meme or, or the idea, the idea of instant awesome, where someone could just pick up a sword and become magnificent. Now, I do not want to crush your dreams that you can be, actually, that sword fighting is a thing and you can develop an like, amazing skill with it because you really, really can. But it's the last thing that, you can do this is the last area where you can pick up something and expect to be awesome straight up the reality is that inexperienced fencers fighting people who are even half good they get wrecked they lose all the time no no they don't just lose they get wrecked totally totally owned okay because you know an experienced fencer are even someone someone sort of an intermediate can really take in and take control of a fight and once that has occurred you know as a newbie you don't have the skills to try and take back that initiative fight is over game over you know i've certainly had that experience personally a number of years ago when mark was training me and a fellow actor for a romeo and juliet performance so he was teaching us both how to use a single sword a side sword in this case and he would regularly take both of us at the same time while we were trying to practice without breaking a sweat. We okay. never got a touch on him as a weapons master. Yeah, and I've, I've seen, like, they've seen good fences, and this is against people who aren't, who are even not noobs, okay? So, like, experienced fences, 
I've seen really, really good fences, like three or four of them in, in Australia, like plough through their tournament pools without, with barely being touched. So like the skill you can develop with a sword is can be quite extraordinary and it matters. You know, the best example of this is our kids. Okay, now one of the things we've often had at events and whatnot is we do the kids versus their parents battle and we love it because, you know, always ends exactly how we expect and like not how the parents are expecting. They they come in there and they go, oh, I'm going to get back at this kid. So oh, maybe they've got some beef or something like that. It's, it's all in good fun. But again, consistently, you know, the kids have been practicing doing fencing with us, with us for two or three years or something like that. The kids consistently wreck their parents who haven't done what they're doing. It's really funny. We had one example where we had eight kids as a group and these kids were used to fighting as a group too so they had little that ones? Tactical... we're talking about little ones some of we're these. talking so about i think the oldest kid we had in that group was 12 most of the kids were between the ages of eight and ten yep so we're doing a bunch of young kids and the first thing we did was we brought in four parents those eight kids took down those four parents didn't lose a child we kept adding parents until we had eight parents by this point quite dedicated trying to take their kids down versus eight kids and at the end of that battle <laughs> Eight parents were dead on the field and eight kids walked off. That was so pretty funny. Yeah. Even if you're 10 years old, skill matters. It just does matter. Okay, it really, really does. Um, and it, please, please end this trope of instant awesome. Uh, uh, because it, it's really offensive, it, not just to the people who are working at the thing, but to the value of the thing. If you can just pick something up and be instant awesome, um, what's the point? You know, and there's there's no narrative interest in that. There's no other interest in that. We want to pick something to sort up up and be awesome, but like at the end of a narrative. Now, Kat, you were talking about was this been re- done really really well? Actually, in the Alana series, so um, by Tamara me, Pierce. Yeah, Tamara Pierce. Um, cool. Alana is um, she's a, she's a girl and she's pretending to be a boy in order to become a page. It's a fantastic series. I highly recommend it to anybody. Yeah, I've read a few. Um, it's really good fun. The, um, interestingly enough, in the 12th century, I think it's 38 or 58 so women. So there are a number of people who are actually women knighted. were knighted as women. So actually, in the genuine medieval period, you wouldn't have had to pretend to be a girl in order to be a knight. If you were the right class, but yeah. Yes, you had to be the right social class. But how we're coming back to Alana, when they first pick up swords, Alana is not awesome. <laughs> she is in fact has no natural talent and in fact gets beaten by another one of the pages, boy called Alex. However, over the next three years, Alana works constantly at her sword work. She does extra things. She trains with, unfortunately, here's the other trope. She trains with a heavy sword so she becomes stronger. Now, training with a heavier sword can help in some ways, but yeah, we've look, already covered that trope. However... No, look, honestly, it, to diverge on that one really briefly, um, no, I've come more and more like as I've, uh, I've trained people for uh, like 10 15 years now uh, more and more onto the whole thing of of making sure that people are not overburdened with a weight weighty weapon and, and building that up progressively um it's only really quite an experienced fencer that can get a lot of benefit out of using a heavier weapon because just you start with a heavy weapon you learn really bad mechanics However, leaving that aside, because as I said, even really, really good authors get that one wrong, which is why I covered it. But she learns, and at the end of the series, she actually beats that boy because her skill has been developed high enough. 
So you can become awesome with a sword. She becomes the king's champion. She becomes the best swordsman in the realm. But she didn't start that way. Absolutely. And this is is one of the exciting things about doing historical fencing or teaching it, is we get to see people make that transition. I've got two great students at the moment um, who are still reasonable beginners. Um, Daniel. Okay, Daniel's been with us for for about a year, okay? And, you know... He's not particularly big. He's not particularly athletic, okay? Um, but he's just been consistently showing up and doing the work. Yeah, he, he won um, a uh, last novice tournament. There was there was a lot of really, really good um, fencing going on there, there, you know? And he won it quite clearly and e- easily because he's just been turning up and showing the work. And there wasn't any specific natural advantage that he had. And I, I'm always most excited and proud of students when they do that. I've got another example of a student like that who's like been just into her third term and it's like and she's already like fighting with sort of almost on parity with students who have been here with two or three years. Um, um, And that's impressive, you know, because she just shows up and she gets stuck in and gets focused on it. So this is the exciting thing about something being a school based thing is it doesn't even need to take a massive long time just doing the work and showing up, and, and it happens quicker than you think. So when you're writing that story about your absolute beginner facing the evil overlord with their sword skills, they're not going to win. No, you're no. going to have to come up with some reason to keep them alive. But then you can send them away, and they can learn, and they can become better, and they can become back like Igneo Montano. Igneo Montano, Toya. Uh, to- Toya. And they can come back eventually and they can beat down that person who killed their father. Yeah, look, honestly, this is one of the exciting things about a skill-based art, you know. Skill really, really matters. Um, And that's that's fascinating and awesome when you're practically doing it. Um, And it's fascinating and awesome when you're looking at narrative examples of it as well, you know. Because that is, it's like the, the training montage and they come out better. Okay, you and they the actually do, and they actually do. So, so that's that's our meme that we don't dislike the training montage <laughs> because that one's actually true. So we just want you to share that with you to cut recap it. Swords are not lightsabers; you can grip them. However, they are scary, and that sharp point pointed straight at your face requires enormous amounts of courage to face to combat. Secondly. Swords are not about power, about raining down blows on people. They're about mechanics. They're about initiative. They're about speed and dexterity. It's about controlling the environment that's happening, yeah. And finally, skill matters. That's what's going to win a fight. The person who knows how to do it best. Now, the most important thing, if you had a plus one to put in a sword, um, and plus one swords are real, um, what would you put it into? So, for me... First up, I'm going to put it into durability. Swords, as we can see, any sharp thing is potentially vulnerable or fragile, much more fragile than you originally think. So I'm going to put it really into durability of, of the weapon. And like particularly if it's magical, it's going to mean I can keep it a lot sharper too, which would be cool. So what would you put yours into? I'm going to put mine into what I've seen genuine, real plus one swords into. I'm going to put it into how well it handles. We have a brilliant swordsmith in Australia. Yeah, unfortunately, sadly, he's not working anymore. Like, just stopped, unfortunately. Oh, so anyone Brad who's White. got one of his swords, Brad White, keep hold of it. And I have observed 
one of Brad White's swords in an experienced swordsman's hand is worth at least one, usually up to three or four points per bout. Thank you for listening to us today. You've been listening to How Big Is This Dragon? How tall is this dragon? How whatever is this dragon? Tall, tall. Big is a different question. Big is an important question. But the question we have in this podcast is how tall is that dragon? How tall is this dragon? See you. See you.